As part of our consideration of baptism and the covenant and the members of the covenant this morning, we're going to read Romans chapter 9. This chapter has sometimes been called the most avoided chapter in the Bible, as you may well expect, because of its reference to the difficult doctrine of predestination, the fact that God loved Jacob but hated Esau. But we read it as part of God's word and in support of very important doctrines of Scripture as well. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, But of him that calleth, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. 
as he saith also in O.C. or Hosea, I will call them my people which were not my people, and her beloved which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Isaiah, or Isaiah, also crieth concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we had been like as Sodoma and been made like unto Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Let's consider also the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 27. The Heidelberg Catechism being one of our Reformed confessions, which lays down for us the Reformed faith, and the Reformed teaching on various doctrines. Lord's Day 27, is then the external baptism with water the washing away of sin itself? Not at all. For the blood of Jesus Christ only and the Holy Ghost cleanse us from all sin. Why then doth the Holy Ghost call baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins? God speaks thus not without great cause, to wit or namely, not only thereby to teach us that, as the filth of the body is purged away by water, so our sins are removed by the blood and spirit of Jesus Christ, but especially that by this divine pledge and sign he may assure us, so not only to teach us, but especially to assure us that we are spiritually cleansed from our sins as really as we are externally washed with water. Are infants also to be baptized? Yes. For since they, as well as the adult, are included in the covenant and church of God, and since redemption from sin by the blood of Christ and the Holy Ghost, the author of faith, is promised to them no less than to the adult, they must, therefore, by baptism, as a sign of the covenant, be also admitted into the Christian church and be distinguished from the children of unbelievers as was done in the Old Covenant or Testament by circumcision, instead of which baptism is instituted in the New Covenant. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we're going to focus our attention for a little while 
on this matter of baptism and particularly infant baptism. We will also consider what the Catechism asks us about in those first two questions when the Catechism asks whether the water of baptism actually washes away sin. We will consider that as well briefly. But we're going to focus on this matter of infant baptism. But since the matter of infant baptism leads us back into the doctrine of the covenant of grace, as we saw there in Lord's Day 27, therefore we're going to actually focus on the doctrine of the covenant this morning. This is an opportunity in the Heidelberg Catechism to focus on the covenant. The covenant is one of the greatest truths of the Bible, one of the greatest truths of the Reformed faith, and it is mentioned here in this Lord's Day. Are infants to be baptized? Yes, for they, as well as the adult, are included in the covenant and church of God. Therefore, they should receive the sign of the covenant. And in the old covenant, that was circumcision, but now in the new covenant, that is baptism. The catechism is teaching us here about the covenant. Now we read Romans chapter 9, and in that passage, the Apostle Paul begins a section of his epistle, Romans 9, 10, and 11, in which he expresses his tremendous grief over the fact that so many of his fellow Jews had fallen away. They stumbled over Jesus Christ. They did not believe in Jesus. And they tried to be righteous by the works of the law. And they perished. They stumbled over the rock of offense. And so lots of questions rise up. These Jews... Were they actually in the covenant of God? And did they, den- did they then perish? What is the covenant of God? Who is actually in the covenant of God? And then who should receive the sign of the covenant of God? These are the questions we want to face this morning. So I call your attention to the theme, God's covenant and the sign of baptism. Notice first the covenant of God. What is it? Secondly, the members of the covenant, who are they? And finally, the sign of the covenant, who should receive it? And what is it? When you read the Bible, you cannot miss the doctrine of the covenant. Many Christians today hardly ever make reference to the covenant. It's not part of their theology, really. It's not part of their thinking. It's not part of their Christian living either. But when you read the Bible, you cannot miss the doctrine of the covenant, it is everywhere, scattered throughout the Old and New Testaments. We can go back to the very first reference to the covenant in Genesis 6, verse 18. In the wicked days of Noah, we are told that God said to Noah, I will destroy the world with a flood, and I will kill and destroy all living creatures, but I will establish my covenant with you, Noah, And with your family, and I will save you in the ark from this wicked world through the waters of the flood. Later, we find God appearing to Abraham in Genesis 12 and following. And God says to Abraham, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect, 
and I will make my covenant between me and thee. That's Genesis 17. Later in verse 7, God says to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations as an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And then God instituted circumcision. And he commanded Abraham to circumcise all of the little baby boys when they turned eight days old. And God said, this will be a token or a sign of my covenant between me and you and your children after you. Hundreds of years later, we are told in Exodus 2 that God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob when the Israelites were in bondage in Egypt, in slavery to Pharaoh, building his treasure cities and laboring under the hot desert sun. God took pity on his people and he remembered his covenant and he redeemed Israel by the hand of Moses from the land of bondage. And we are told there, that God called Israel, the nation of Israel, his son, his firstborn son. And he sent Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh to say to him, let my son go. And when God called Israel his son, he indicated something about the meaning of this covenant. It's like a father-son relationship. And when God brought Israel out of Egypt through the midst of the Red Sea on dry ground, he led them to Mount Sinai, and he gave them his law and his commandments. And he wrote the law on two tables of stone and called those the words of the covenant. And God established his covenant with Israel there at Mount Sinai. And he told Moses to build a tabernacle, a tent, and to set it up right in the middle of the nation of Israel. And God said in Exodus 29, 45, and 46, I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. There was that covenant language again. I will dwell with them and be their God and they will be my people. Again, God was revealing something about the nature of that relationship. It is God dwelling with us as our God and us as his people. But throughout her history, Israel committed spiritual adultery against God again and again and again when she worshipped the idol gods of the Canaanites and the other peoples of the land. She played the whore with other gods, worshipping idol gods. And then God sent them into captivity at last, but he raised up prophets like Ezekiel, And God reminded his people through Ezekiel that when she was a little abandoned orphan child whom nobody wanted and nobody loved, God looked upon her and loved her and washed her and clothed her and beautified her until she became a beautiful young woman and he married her and he entered into a covenant with her. Ezekiel 16 verse 8. There, too, God shows us something about the nature of this relationship. It is a marriage relationship between God and his people in which he takes his adulterous, whorish wife, washes her, forgives her, and embraces her 
in an intimate relationship. Through Jeremiah, God promised to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. And then when our Lord Jesus came, on the night that he was betrayed in the upper room, he broke bread and he took the cup of wine and he said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Jesus said, my blood will be the blood of the new covenant. And then the apostle Paul came And he went out into all the world preaching the gospel to Jews and Gentiles. And he said about us preachers that we are ministers of the new covenant, which is not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. And so repeatedly the scriptures tell us about this covenant, the covenant of the Lord. What is that covenant? What is this relationship that God is seen to be establishing with Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, with David? This relationship that God is laying down through Jesus and his blood at the cross and through the Spirit who works and gives life? The covenant is the most wonderful and delightful thing that there is. Because the covenant of God is the very essence of our salvation. The covenant is the goal of salvation. The goal is the everlasting reality for which all things are created and to which all things bend. The covenant is the great relationship that God enjoys within himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that God willed to share with us and to establish with us. The covenant is the everlasting relationship of fellowship and friendship and communion and love between God and his people in Christ, which he establishes through his spirit. That's the covenant. And as soon as you define it like that, you can see that's the most blessed reality there is. There's nothing more delightful, nothing more wonderful, more beautiful than a relationship with God Because we know who we are by nature. We know that we are sinners. We know that by nature we were the enemies of God who broke his holy law and trampled under feet all of his good commandments, who despise his good commandments, who sin against him and rebel against him. And we know that we as sinners deserve nothing but the wrath and vengeance of God as his enemies. We deserve God to punish us We deserve God to cast us away, to throw us into everlasting damnation, to banish us from his fellowship, to have no fellowship with us, to have no communion with us, to destroy us in hell. That's what we deserve. But God, in his love and tender mercy, establishes a covenant with us. God comes to us and makes a relationship with us of the most intimate and blessed communion in which he says, I am your God and you are my people. You who were my enemies, I reconcile you to myself so that now you are my friends. You who were poor, wretched, miserable, orphans, helpless and lost in your sins, 
I've taken to myself and I've washed you and cleansed you and I've taken you to be my children. You who are a whorish, adulterous woman, I have forgiven all your sins. I've taken you to be my wife and I embrace you and I will never leave you or forsake you though you sin against me every day. That's God's covenant. And to accomplish this relationship, God became a man. To accomplish this relationship, the incarnation of God was necessary. The great God and creator of the universe had to come into the universe and become a man like us so that he could shed blood, his blood, so that he could pay for our sins and satisfy his own justice and remove his own wrath and vengeance by suffering it himself on the cross to wash away all of the filthiness and wretchedness of our sins. Only he could do that, and only by becoming one of us. God had to become a man also so that he could enter into the sweetest and most intimate fellowship, face to face with God. He became a man so that we might see God in fellowship with God for all eternity. And now God comes and he sends his spirit into our hearts. And as Paul says, the new covenant is not of the letter, because the letter kills, the law kills, But the new covenant is of the Spirit. The Spirit is sent into our hearts. And the Spirit gives life. The Spirit unites us to God through Jesus Christ. And gives us life. So that already now, as Christians, we begin to experience fellowship with God in the covenant by faith. The hope of the covenant is that Christ will come again. And when he comes, as the mediator and head and Lord of the covenant, with all of his angels, he will gather his people out of the earth. He will destroy the world with fire. He will create a new heavens and a new earth. He will raise our bodies from the dead. And he will bring us into the new heavens and the new earth. And there, at the very end of Scripture, we find the covenant again. In Revelation 21, John says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. There's the bride. There's the people of God. All of God's people, perfectly cleansed and washed and saved and gathered. And now this holy city comes down And John hears a voice saying, Now the tabernacle of God will be with men. And there is that covenant language. And he will be their God, and they will be his people, and he will dwell with them, and they will dwell with him, and he will wipe away all their tears. And there will be no more sorrow, no more death. That will be the perfection of the covenant. The covenant is the intimate relationship of fellowship and communion with God in Christ Jesus that will last for all eternity.
who then are the members of this covenant. And that will bring us also to answer the question, who should receive the sign of this covenant? The scriptures teach us that God establishes his covenant with believers and their seed in their generations and with all those who are far off in the nations, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. He establishes his covenant with believers and their seed and with all of the elect throughout the nations of the world. That does not mean that God establishes his covenant with all of the children of believers or with all of the people in the nations of the world or with all of the people who hear the preaching of the gospel. There is a view within Reformed circles that says that God establishes his covenant with believers and all of their children, every single one. Every child who is baptized is brought into the covenant of God, according to their view. But they do not define the covenant the way I did in the first point. They do not believe that the covenant is the essence of salvation, the goal of salvation, the everlasting relationship with God of sweet communion and fellowship. They do not deny those things, but they don't think that is the covenant. Rather, they believe that the covenant is a means to that end. The covenant is like a vehicle that brings us to that eternal reality. And therefore, the covenant is not everlasting, but temporary. The covenant serves a certain purpose. The covenant is not like the relationship between a father and his child, or between a husband and his wife. But the covenant is an agreement between God and all of the children of believers. The covenant is a bargain, or a pact, or a treaty of some kind according to that view. Or, the covenant is even a promise that God speaks to every single one of the children of believers. But that agreement, that bargain, that pact, or that promise is only a temporary means to the end of salvation. And, that covenant, therefore, is with everybody who is sitting under the preaching and everybody who receives baptism. And it is then a conditional covenant. Those who hold to this view have often compared it to the writing of a check. And when I was a catechism student and I was taught this view as a young person by my pastor, he explained that to us. This is not the illustration that we use to explain their view, but this is the illustration they use to explain their view. That it is like God writing a check. God writes a check, and he gives that check to every baptized child at their baptism. And on that check, God promises everlasting life. To every baptized child, he gives that check 
which promises to them everlasting life. And God signs that check. It's a valid check written out in the amount of everlasting life. He gives that check to every child at their baptism. That's the covenant, they think. That's a covenant. And that's a conditional covenant. Now it is the responsibility of the child to take that check, to turn it over, and to endorse it. And only when the child endorses that check, bringing it to the bank, does he receive what is promised in the check. And they would say then that there are three things that that child might do with that check. Some baptized children will take that check, that covenant of God, that promise, and they will put it in a frame, and they will hang it up in their house, never endorsing it, and they will show it off to everyone who comes into their house, look at my check that God gave me. And that's the Christian, the professing Christian, who only boasts in his Christianity but is not a true believer. Others take that check and they rip it up into shreds. And they say, that's the covenant breaker. He had the covenant. He was in the covenant. He had God's promise, but he ripped it up. He didn't want it. And then in the third place, there are those who turn the check over and endorse it. And that is the child of believers who comes to a true and living faith repents of his sins, and abides in Christ. And so, all three of those types, they think, are in the covenant. Because in that view, the covenant is only a promise or an agreement or a pact that God makes with every baptized person, which is conditioned upon the faith and obedience of that person. And if you say, but that's Arminian, then they will say, well... But God fulfills the condition in the elect. And then we would say, but if God fulfills that condition, then it's not a condition. Because a condition is something that we must fulfill. If it's a condition, we must fulfill it. Then it's not a condition if God fulfills it. Then we would say, it's a means. A means that God uses. Not a condition, but a means. God gives the gift of faith in the elect, so that they receive the blessings of the covenant. In the Protestant Reformed churches, we do not agree with that view of the covenant. The covenant is not a check written out to every baptized child. The covenant is that relationship of fellowship and friendship itself. The proof of that is what I said in the first point. Whenever God speaks of his covenant in Scripture, he describes it as a relationship of love. He says, you, Israel, are my wife. I love you. You are my people. I dwell with you. I never leave you or forsake you. You are my son. And so we believe that the covenant itself is the very goal of salvation, the essence of salvation. And therefore, who are the members of the covenant? Only the elect. In Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says that God expressed his promises, the promise of salvation, the promise of covenant, to Abraham and his seed. That's Genesis. And Paul says, Christ is that seed. Christ is that seed. So when God made the promise of the covenant to Abraham and his seed, God was making the promise 
to Christ. God was promising to establish his covenant with Christ. And, Paul goes on to say in Galatians 3, all those who believe in Christ, they are also the seed of Abraham. They are also members of the covenant. The members of the covenant are, first of all, Christ himself. He is the first member of the covenant. And then the members of the covenant are all those who belong to Christ, and therefore they are all the elect in Christ, who are given to Christ, who belong to Christ. doesn't matter if they are Jews or Gentiles. doesn't matter if they are black or white. doesn't matter if they are rich or poor. doesn't matter what nation of the world they come in. doesn't matter. Except that they are chosen eternally by God in Christ and redeemed by Christ at the cross. And they come to a living faith in Christ. That's the teaching of Romans chapter 9 that we read. As I said, one of the most avoided chapters of the Bible is Romans chapter 9. Not only because in that chapter the apostle is talking about election and reprobation, which is not a doctrine that most people like, but... In that chapter, he's also speaking about that in regard to the covenant. He's asking the question, why are my fellow Jews stumbling over Jesus? Why don't they believe in Jesus? Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He came into this world, according to the flesh, as the Messiah of the Jews. But the Jews rejected him. Why? How can this be? He's so grieved by it that he even says, I would allow myself to be accursed in everlasting hell if only my brothers and sisters in Tarsus, in Jerusalem, in Nazareth, my fellow Jews, if only they could be saved. He says in verse 4, They are Israelites, and to them pertaineth the adoption, and the glory, and the covenants. To the Israelites pertained the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. How can this be? And he finds the answer to that question. Verse 6, Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. Is that the problem here? That all these fellow Jews were in the covenant, but God failed? No. For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. There are many who are of Israel. There are many Israelites. Many Jews, according to the flesh. But not all of them are the true Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. Not just because you are a physical, biological child of Abraham. That doesn't make you a member of the covenant and one of God's children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And he goes even farther, he says. Also to Rebekah and Isaac, verse 10. Rebekah had twins in her womb. 
but the children not even being born, neither having done any good or any evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Jacob and Esau, that's as clear as it comes. They were both children of believers. They were twins. They were in the womb at the very same time, born at the same time, raised in the same house by the same parents who were believers. They were both children of believers. They were both circumcised. One God loved. The other God hated. They are not all Israel that are of Israel. That was the solution to the reality that Paul saw, that not all of the Jews believed in Jesus, only some. That also explains today why some who are born and raised in the church eventually reject the church, turn their back on Jesus, turn their back on God, They were baptized in the church, raised in the church, taught all the scriptures. And then they walk away. How can that be? In John 15, Jesus says that he is the vine and we are the branches. But only the living branches bear fruit. There are other branches on the vine that are dead branches. And he says they will be cut off and removed and burned in the fire. Those dead branches are people who were born and baptized and raised in the church. As the Apostle says in Hebrews 6, these are people who tasted the heavenly gift. They tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. But they have fallen away. Is that because the word of God hath taken none effect? Did God fail? God never fails. The explanation is that not all those who are born to believers are actually members of the covenant. They are not in an actual relationship with God, but only the elect. But if that is the case, then why do we baptize all of the children of believers? The Catechism teaches us that we are to baptize the infants of believers because they are included in the covenant and church of God, like the adults. Redemption, salvation, and faith are promised to them just like to the adults. Therefore, the children, like the adults, must be baptized. They must receive the sign of the covenant. But how can that be? If we have just established that not all of the children of believers are elect, and only the elect are in God's covenant. Is it that we just presuppose or we just assume that they are elect because we do not know for sure? Since we do not know for sure, we just assume that they are elect. We baptize them on the basis of that assumption. Or we hope that they are elect. So we just baptize them on the basis of our hope. 
That was the view of some others in the Reformed camp. But we do not believe that either. We do not baptize them on the basis of an assumption or a wish or a hope. We baptize the children of believers on the basis of the promise of God, nothing less. Not on the basis of something in us, but on the basis of God's promise. What is God's promise? Genesis 17, verse 7, God promised to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you in their generations. And we have seen that that seed is Christ and all who belong to Christ. But then he also says, in their generations. And by that, God is promising that he will gather his elect from the children of believers in the lines of their generations. God promises to do that. And that's why the Apostle Peter in Acts 2 verse 39 stood up on the day of Pentecost and said, The promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, all the elect whom the Lord our God shall call out there. The promise is to them too, and it's to you and to your children. And he didn't mean to say every single one of them, but the elect children, as many as the Lord our God shall call, but the promise is to those children. It's true that we don't know if maybe one of them is an Esau. We certainly do hope that they are not. And we certainly do raise them as if they are elect. And we certainly do view them as elect. But we baptize them not on the basis of our assumption or hope, but on the basis of that promise. God promises to establish his covenant with us and our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren after us. Generation after generation. The promise is to our children, you see, as children. The promise is not just to our children when they grow up. We don't have to wait for them to grow up to find out whether or not the promise is to them. It's to them when they are still babies. When they were eight days old, they were circumcised. And in Mark chapter 10, when the disciples tried to tell the parents, don't bother Jesus by bringing your little children to him. He has better things to do. He's a very busy man. Then Jesus heard them and he said, whoa, 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 whoa. Suffer the little children to come unto me and don't forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of God. And he gathered the little ones up in his arms and blessed them. When they were little, he took them up in his arms and blessed them. Already as little children, they are included in the covenant and church. And that's why they must be baptized. The Belgic Confession is another one of our Reformed Confessions. And in Article 34, the Reformed churches have taught for the past 500 years that the infants of believers ought to be baptized and sealed with the sign of the covenant as the children of Israel formerly were circumcised 
upon the same promises which are made unto our children. They were circumcised upon the same promises that we baptize our children, the same promises. And indeed, the confession says, Christ shed his blood no less for the washing of the children of the faithful than for the adult persons. That brings me to just a brief word about infants of believers who die in infancy. There are many. There have been thousands, if not millions, over the years. They have never grown up. They did not manifest a true faith. They were never conscious of Jesus. Were they saved? Did Reformed parents have any comfort as they stood by the grave of that little box of their little baby laid into the grave? I had to officiate at a graveside like that about a year ago. Reformed believers lost a little one and asked me to do the graveside. Is there any comfort that can be brought? The scriptures say very little about that. But in the Canons of Dort, the third of our Reformed confessions, in Head 1, Article 17, the Reformed Fathers gave this comfort to parents. Since we are to judge of the will of God from his word, which testifies that the children of believers are holy, not by nature, but in virtue of the covenant of grace, by virtue of the covenant of grace, in which they, together with the parents, are comprehended. Godly parents have no reason to doubt of the election and salvation of their children, whom it pleaseth God to call out of this life in their infancy. You can hear the tenderness of the Reformed fathers to those parents who had to bury their little ones. Parents, they said, you have no reason to doubt no reason to doubt the election and salvation of your little ones because God establishes his covenant with believers and their seed after them in their generations. And that's why we baptize our little babies. The reason we do that is not the same as the reason the Roman Catholic Church does that. When I was in the Philippines, a Roman Catholic country, many people, when they heard that we practiced infant baptism, were a bit alarmed at that because most of the Christians in the Philippines are evangelicals and Baptists and Pentecostals who practice adult believer baptism. And they were a bit alarmed to hear that we practice infant baptism because that's a Roman Catholic practice in their minds. We had to make very clear in our mission work that we do not baptize our infants for the same reason that the Roman Catholics do. We have a radically different view and practice. Why does the Roman Catholic Church baptize infants? Because they believe that the water of baptism is a holy water that actually has the power to wash away the original sin of that baby. And they believe that without baptism, there is no salvation for infants who die in infancy. 
And because that was a very hard doctrine, the Roman Catholic Church, which is very able to change its doctrines whenever it wants, decided that, well, those infants don't go to hell. They go to limbo. And they created a new place which they called limbo, which we read nothing of in the Bible. If a baby is not baptized, they believe it goes to to limbo. It cannot go to heaven, but it doesn't go to hell. So it hovers in between for all eternity. And so they consider it very urgent to baptize that baby as soon as possible with the holy water. The Catechism asks that question here. Is the external washing with water the actual washing away of sin itself? No. The Reformed teach that only the blood and spirit of Jesus Christ wash away sin. Only the blood and spirit of Jesus Christ. Well, why then does the Bible say that there is a washing of regeneration and that baptism is the washing away of our sins? The Catechism says the Bible teaches that for a very important purpose. First of all, to teach us. And secondly, to assure us. First, to teach us. Just as you see that water, the water of baptism, we are to be taught that our sins are washed away by the blood and spirit of Christ. We are taught by the water. And we are also assured, because baptism is not just a teaching mechanism. Baptism is a seal, a promise, a pledge to all God's people. And there is a promise in baptism that assures us all of your sins are washed away just as really as you see the water sprinkled and poured on the person. The Belgic Confession again in Article 34 teaches us this beautiful truth. Neither doth this baptism avail us only at the time when the water is poured upon us and received by us. If that were the case, then baptism really has no value for us because we practice infant baptism. And when we are infants, we're not aware of what is happening. So does baptism have no value to us? No, the confession says, it does not only avail us at the time when the water is poured upon us, but also through the whole course of our life. How is that? Well, Because we see the baptism of other people. We see that. And every time we see that, we see that water, we are to think of our own baptism. We are to reflect on the water that was applied to us. And then it becomes a powerful comfort to us of our salvation. Baptism is a sacrament, a sign and seal of the covenant And it must be given to infants of believers. Why? Because they are also in the covenant and church of God. So they must receive the sign as well. We do not merely dedicate our little ones. We can dedicate them. That's fine. That's good. We dedicate them at baptism as well. But we don't merely dedicate them. In other words, we don't merely dedicate this child saying that we're going to do our utmost to raise this child in the hope that he will become a Christian when he grows up. But we baptize them. And the reason we baptize them is because 
We view them as already in the covenant, already in the kingdom of God. And we teach them from their youngest days, they are the children of God. We teach them to pray, our Father which art in heaven. You can't really teach your child to pray that if you don't believe that that child really, we can be sure that that child is a child of God. Then why would he pray to God as his father? But we teach our children to pray our father because we consider them already the children of God. Now some of them grow up and show that to be otherwise. And that's a great grief, just like Paul was grieved. There's no greater grief for a Christian parent than to see that child that we brought for baptism, that we raised, that we sent to the Christian school, that we catechized, that we taught, and we devoted all that spiritual energy to for 20 years or more, walk away. There's no greater grief. But we baptize them because the promise, God says, is unto you and to your children. What a blessed promise that is. Amen. Father, we thank thee for thy blessed covenant and promises. They are very sweet to us. We thank thee that thou hast gathered us into that covenant and given to us also an awareness that thou art our friend and we are thy people. Pray that thou would spread the gospel of this communion with God into all the nations. Thou would gather thy people out of every kindred, nation, tribe, and tongue, and also from our own children. Bless this word to our hearts. May it strengthen and comfort us in our Christian life. All this we pray in Jesus' name.